Well, it's nice to be back from Tennessee. It's kind of pretty there. But as I have found on most of my vacations, when I get back, I need a vacation to recover from my vacation. I was hoping to bring forth some wonderful and mystical teaching. But my mind kept going to one place and one place only. The Lord was very emphatic on what I should speak about. I must say, um, I stopped listening to the news the day after uh, Trump was nominated as a Republican candidate for presence, because uh, the news cycle just became redundant. It was always the same news cycle. Trump did something, and the Democrats are not happy. Trump didn't do something, and the Democrats are not happy. But over the last three weeks, I've watched more news because of the situation in the world right now. And it has to be addressed. Sometimes heaven has to come down to earth. On October 7th, Hamas attacked Israel, killing over 1,400 men, women, and children, and taking over 230 hostages, and most of those were civilians. In less than one week, the victim, Israel, was cast as the aggressor when we responded. Now, that is not a surprise, but the speed at which it happened did surprise me. At the UN, over the course of my time in Tennessee, the nations have called for a ceasefire to discuss peace. The support for Hamas, which means violence, the word Hamas means violence, continues to grow every single day. On America's campuses, students and professors alike march in support of Hamas and Jews are harassed and threatened. At Cornell, they're afraid to go to, to classes. They have to be escorted by security. Apparently, the barbaric beheading of infants cut from their mother's womb, burning people alive, and raping women to death has been justified. I don't understand the process of justifying that behavior, but it has been justified. In stellar hypocrisy, the ones calling for peace threaten violence against those who disagree with them. It would appear the only thing that surpasses their ignorance is their arrogance. Nations are aligning against Israel. If I remember correctly, there are three nations at the UN, praise God, the United States being one of them, who's standing with Israel right now. Russia has pulled out of the nuclear testing treaty, which prohibited nuclear testing, and is now cooperating with China and North Korea. Europe has sided with Islam once again. 
and all I can see is storm clouds gathering. It's my hope to dislodge some of the strong delusion of our age today. I will fail, but that's my hope. I want, I want us to behold the light that we cannot presently see, or even in, con, in complete darkness, the light of the neshama, the light of one soul, can illuminate, like the Hanukkah, that in complete darkness, Hashem's candle is lit, it lights other lights, and soon the whole room is bathed in this soft glow of light. If you attend this congregation, you believe that Israel still holds a special place in the heart of God, that your faith in Yeshua is rooted in the offspring of Abraham, who would bring salvation, the salvation of God, not to one nation, Israel, but to all the nations of the earth. Paul speaks about it in Romans chapter 3. What advantage has the Jew? Or what profit is there in circumcision? Great in every respect. For unto them has been entrusted the oracles of God. The very words, spoken words of God Almighty. Yeshua speaks about it even more plainly. In chapter 13 of Matthew, he says, the scribe who comes to faith, obviously faith in him, the scribe who, who comes to faith will bring treasures out of both the old and the new. It's the foundational verse that called me into ministry 40 years ago. If you believe this, that puts you in a very small minority of those who inhabit this planet. The vast majority have no love for Israel. Many are indifferent, many others hate. I want to look more closely at this clash of identity. The very concept of identity is somewhat complicated. Identity becomes necessary as differences between people arise. In the beginning there was just man. In the Hebrew it was ish or adam. Both mean man or male. We have two words in English, two words in Hebrew. Male, man. When God separated out the woman from the man, we needed another word. Because now there was something that was different. Sort of the same, but different. So in Hebrew, it's isha. In English, it's woman. For the woman was taken out of the man. After man was scattered... At the Tower of Babel, more specificity was necessary to identify humanity. Man lived in different places, he spoke different languages, and he began to take on different physical appearances. And men began to identify themselves according to those differences, as well as being identified by others according to those differences. And without turning this into a sociology class, as the differences increased, some groups formed alliances. However, most often, those differences spawned suspicion, fear, and hatred in that order. The hate often caused the majority of a specific society to purge or enslave the minority 
that they hated from their midst. However, that didn't cause the fear, suspicion, and hatred to subside. In fact, with no remnant of the hated ones left to contradict the vitriol of the majority, the hate was amplified through stories passed down from generation to generation. All good was leached from the hated ones, and any bad was exaggerated, and those outcasts became the very personification of evil. In many cases, they became proverbial. We see this in Scripture early on. There are three major religions that draw their faith from the Tanakh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. However, rather than finding unity being based on the same foundation, there is division because each interpret God's word differently. The Jews see Moshe as the prophet of God and interpret the Tanakh through the words of the Talmud. Christians see Yeshua as the prophet of God, interpret the, the Tanakh through the words of the Pritatasha, the New Covenant. And Islam sees Muhammad as the prophet of God and interpret the Tanakh through the uh, Quran and the Hadith. Now, Israel was the first people of God. Christianity believed they superseded Israel because of their sin, and Christians now are the new people of God. Islam, in like fashion, believed they superseded the church because of its sin. You've got to be careful with replacement theology, because you never know when you're the next one to be replaced. Very little security in that position. <clears throat> the most ancient rivalry of nations in Scripture is between Egypt and the descendants of Abraham. Prior to the enslavement of Israel, the pharaohs knew God. That, that's often forgotten. God spoke to the pharaohs. He warned Pharaoh that he should not, in a dream, that he should not uh, lay with Sarai. That I was Abraham's wife. He warned Pharaoh about a coming uh, a drought and um, famine. There was communication between God and Egypt. And in fact, in Isaiah, it's prophesied that at one point, Egypt will be called my people. Israel will be my inheritance. The Jews were treated rather well in Egypt for the sake of Yosef, who interpreted Pharaoh's dream. They were given prime land. When Israel began to prosper, a new Pharaoh, who did not know Yosef, came to power. He perceived a threat from Israel, and he enslaved us. This schism began in sin and it was perpetuated by sin. If you'll remember, Avram and Sarai were promised a child. And when God told Avram that Sarah would, would give birth, Sarah was old and barren, what did Sarah do? She laughed. That's why Yitzchak is called Yitzchak. It means laughter. There are other reasons that she laughed after the birth. She was happy she was 
had given birth. But it was also, Yitzchak was also to remind her of her first reaction to God's word promising her that she would give birth. Sarazin was she had no faith. She took matters into her own hands and encouraged her husband Avraham, or Avram at the time, to lay with her Egyptian handmaiden, Hagar, who gave birth to Ishmael. Avraham's sin was, Avraham didn't have a lot of faith either. He also saw Hagar as a solution to not having a child. If you remember, you know, God says, I'm going to bless you, and Avraham says, what? What are you going to give me? I have no son. What are you going to give me? Anything you give me here will be scattered. I have no heir. So he had, he saw Hagar as a solution also, and he laid with her. Hagar's sin, well, she was prideful when she gave birth. She was shown a lot of attention, because now Avram had an heir. And she looked down on Sarai after Ishmael was born. That arrogance was returned to her when Sarai gave birth to Yitzchak. And Hagar and Ishmael are cast from Avram's tent to wander wherever they would. And Jews and Christians believe that the child of promise was Yitzchak. Islam believes the child of promise is Ishmael, his firstborn. In fact, the prophet Muhammad is believed to have been the offspring of Ishmael. The descendants of Ishmael, the Muslims, Muslims and the descendants of Yitzchak, the Jews, have been fighting ever since. Sometimes the sins of the fathers are carried to the third and fourth generation. Sometimes they're carried to the third and the fourth millennium. We're still in this battle. From the viewpoint of the church, after Israel's leadership rejected Yeshua as the Messiah, because this is a history of hatred, not a history of Jewish and Islam has hatred. It's just hatred in general. From the viewpoint of the church, after Israel's leadership rejected Yeshua as Messiah, the newly formed Christian church rejected the Jews utterly. When Constantine was converted, he called for a council at Nicaea in the 4th century to purge the various heresies that were arriving, arriving, oh, arising in this new faith. One of his directives to the leaders of this council at Nicaea was let us have nothing in common with the detestable Jews. It was at this council that Pesach was discarded and replaced with the feast of Ishtar, Easter. A little bit later, Shabbat, Saturday, was replaced by Sunday. The Greeks and the Romans long believed the Jewish people to be lazy for keeping Shabbat. Ah, Jim Jews, they, they need a day to rest. The new church codified this attitude. And over the next 1,800 years, the church, in all of its iterations, arrogantly saw the Jewish people as being evil. 
Israel had been conquered, the people dispersed from their land, which the Romans now called Palestine, which is English, but it comes from the word Philistia or Philistines, the ancient uh, enemies of the people of God. Of course, this view opposes Paul's instructions in Romans 11. Do not be arrogant towards the natural branches. You do not support the root. The root supports you. Israel is the root from which Christianity grew. Christianity does not exist in a vacuum. It has a root, a foundation. Paul asked this question because these questions were being posed even when Paul was roaming the earth. Has God abandoned the people he foreknew? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously no. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God does not take back what he has promised forever. He's not a man that he should lie. The hatred of Israel stems from a belief that the Jewish people killed Yeshua. Well, that's not exactly accurate. The apostles were all Jews, and they led in excess of a million other Jews in Israel to a faith in Yeshua by the end of the first century, according to Neander, a Jewish church historian. Neander means new man when he was converted. He had to change his Jewish name to something more appropriate for the church. So he called himself Neander, new man. And he did some figuring on the myriads of myriads of priests and others who came to the Lord, and he came up with a million. I don't really care how many. There were a lot. But all of that aside, Yeshua gives his own perspective on his death. In John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me. That bears repeating. No one takes my life from me. I give my life. My own free will. I have the authority to give my life. I have the authority to take it back again. It is the hubris of man to declare himself capable of kill the, killing the physical manifestation of God on this earth. That is foolishness of the very first order. Again, Yeshua, Matthew 26, there's a discussion about his death, and he said, don't you know I can call my father, and he will send more than 12 legions of angels, but it's for this reason I came. Yeshua gave his life as a sacrifice for the sin of man. It was his choice. If Jewish sin alone put him on the, on the cross, then he died for one nation's sin, Israel. But the power of his sacrifice was much greater. Many of my people understood this. In the Midrash on Mashiach, some of our sages write this. Messiah will be greater than Moshe, for Moshe led into the service of God one nation, Israel. Moshe will lead 
all the nations into the service of God. For me, this discussion is, is simple. It's a waste of time. This Jew killed Yeshua. My sin put him on the cross. He died for my sin, which is now forgiven. And I am saved. Why is that so hard to understand? Unfortunately, Yeshua's words did not hold sway over the church, who wildly persecuted the Jewish people. Through the Crusades and the Inquisitions and the forced conversions and the pogroms and alike, millions were beaten and tortured and raped and murdered and expelled and robbed of their property, and all in the name of Yeshua. Yet there has always remained a remnant of Jewish people who have believed in the Son of God and the Son of Man. Islam, which began in 610 of the Common Era, rejected much of the Church's teachings, but held on to the hatred of the sons of Yitzchak. The followers of Muhammad were equally violent to the Jews, hounded us through all the lands that they conquered, and it goes on to this very day. In the 1930s, a man rose up and used the ingrained hatred of the Jewish people to corrupt the nation of Germany. He used the vitriol of another German, Martin Luther, to harden the hearts of many. In one passage of Luther's book, The Jews and Their Lies, he instructs the people to gather the Jews together, put them in the synagogues, and then burn the synagogue. That was not Luther's original, or that, that idea did not originate with Luther. Luther is calling on church history. This was an ancient practice. In 423 CE, the Byzantine emperor prohibited Christians from such behavior. Up until that time, it was legal to do precisely that, and they did. In World War II, the people of the world fought Hitler's hatred. They recognized his hatred would not be satiated with the extermination of the Jew. They recognized that once the Jew was gone, Hitler was coming for them. Following Hitler's Holocaust, the word Holocaust means fiery death, the nations of the world declared Israel should be given back to the Jewish people. With the stroke of a pen, Israel was born again from the, from the ashes of the Holocaust. Jewish euphoria and celebration lasted but a moment. Immediately, the followers of Islam under Abdul Nasser of Egypt called for war. The Muslim people who lived in Israel, mostly Egyptians and Jordanians, were told by Nasser to leave, that they would be allowed to return after Israel was pushed into the sea and annihilated. In their wartime calculus, they didn't factor in God. 
and Israel was not defeated. And those who followed Nasser's instructions to leave lost their lands. Those who stayed did not lose their lands. It was not Israel who expelled Arabs or Muslims. We let them leave. It was Israel who would not allow them to return, for once you have declared yourself in favor of the annihilation of Israel, Israel is not mad, and so it didn't allow them back in. Who invites a guy who tells you at the door, I want to kill you? Oh, come on in, have a cup of tea. This is insanity. We're the only nation who does this. There are consequences for losing wars. That's why reasonable people don't start wars. In 1967, Nasser attacked again, vowing to restore Palestinians to their land. What a preposterous notion. It was never their land. Palestinians never ruled themselves. Palestine was not a nation ruled by Palestinians. Egypt and Jordan ruled Gaza and the West Bank respectively, and Syria ruled the Golan, the plateau that looks down on the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan Valley. In fact, and I am praising the Lord that there are some news uh, affiliates who are actually stating from, from the sheikhs and some of the uh, Quran scholars. The Quran in, in chapter 5, verse 22, states that Allah gave the Holy Land to Israel, the Jewish people. And that those who deny that, deny Quran. Of course, those people are hated by the majority of Muslims. But it's, it's there in the Quran. Nasser gathered those who resisted what it says in the Quran and decided to fight. For six days Israel fought, and on the seventh day we rested. And once again the enemies of God lost the war. Jerusalem was now under Jewish control for the first time in two millennium. But this did not stop the tyrants of terror. There's a, uh, a Greek playwright called Sophocles. He's got a great quotable. The tyrant is a child of pride who drinks from his sickening cup of recklessness and vanity until from his high crest he plummets headlong into the dust of hope. This is embodied by the terrorist Yasser Arafat, the leader of the PLO. Jordan, the king, King Hussein of Jordan, in 1970, a little bit before, uh, gave Arafat, who was being hunted by Israel because of all the deaths he caused, he gave him sanctuary in Jordan. Yasser Arafat thanked the king for this 
sanctuary. By starting the first intifada in 1970, not against Israel, but against Jordan. He started a civil war in Jordan. Well, King Hussein was not going to have any of that. He rolled his tanks into the Palestinian refugee camp and opened fire. And when the smoke cleared, over 10,000 Palestinians lay dead. That's how King Hussein of Jordan dealt with the Palestinians. Those who survived that day called it Black September. A terrorist group took the name Black September, but interestingly did not retaliate against Jordan, but Israel. And at the 1972 Olympics, they took 11 Israeli athletes hostage and murdered them. After the defeat of Islam in the Yom Kippur War of 1973, a short time afterwards, Egypt and Israel entered peace talks, and Anwar Sadat made peace with Menachem Begin, and he paid for it with his life. He was murdered eight years later by the Egyptian Islamic Jihad in 1981. They didn't want peace. They wanted the annihilation of Israel. They're not interested in the two-state solution, which is no solution. They wanted utter victory. In 1987, Hamas, again meaning violence, was created by Sheikh Ahmed Nassim, and he violently resisted any attempts at peace accords the word peace was not in his vocabulary. And in Hamas's charter, it calls for the utter annihilation of the land of Israel. It's there in black and white. It's a fact. In 1988, Hamas called for a general strike of Arab workers in Israel, more specifically the Shuk, the old, the old city where the open market is. Well, not everybody listened. And those who didn't listen were murdered by Hamas. I was there in 1988. I saw it. It's not secondhand. It's a fact. It happened. Hamas was killing Arabs, Palestinians, whatever you wish to call the people. Meanwhile, they're all dead. Hamas rules by fear, coercion, intimidation, just like all the despots that came before them and all who will come after them. This is outlined in Musab Hassan Yosef's book, The Son of Hamas. When he was in jail, he watched Hamas beat and torture and murder other Palestinian inmates. And he said, what am I a part of here? And he left. He's no longer a part of Hamas. Hamas came to political power in Gaza in 2006. Again, I was there. 
There was a war in Lebanon. There were uprisings in Gaza. I saw this. Through this coercion, through this, these threats, they came to political power in Gaza. Hamas is recently responsible for the greatest terror attack against Israel since the Holocaust. It is their 9-11, if you will. And I think I need to bring this little side note to light here, because what, what we hear is in isolation. But nothing that happens is isolated. Things don't happen in a vacuum. There's a context to things that happen. Things came before that developed and brought about the situations we find ourselves in now. The things we do have consequences. The modern configuration of the Middle East is a relatively modern occurrence. It happened with the breakup of the Ottoman Empire after World War I when they sided with Germany. They lost the war, and so the, the Turkish Ottoman Empire was broken up. Iran, Iraq, and Syria were not established till the 1930s. We're talking about people's identity who were much older than that, but the nations themselves. What was Iran called before Iran? Persia. The hatred of the Jews once again gave the Arab nations common cause with Hitler in World War II, and more changes took place. This is important. There was never a Palestinian country, period. When Israel was established in 1948, Palestine was ruled by Egypt and Jordan, not by Palestinians. The nation of, of, of Palestine became official. It was established in 1988. That's when it was recognized by the United Nations. Israel was established in 1948, 40 years earlier. Israel is older than Palestine. And I'm not even talking in a biblical sense. That's obvious. But even in a modern sense, it's 40 years older than Palestine. Israel cannot occupy Palestine. There was no Palestine when Israel was formed. Now, I love to laugh. I make fun of Pertinary everything, especially me. Because I don't know how you feel about it, but Sometimes I'm pretty funny. I watch myself do stuff and just can't stop laughing. There is no chance in this congregation I will ever think of myself more highly than I ought to. Most Jews love to laugh. It's the way we cope. Only the Jewish people would create a sitcom on the Holocaust, on World War II. Hogan's heroes. 
We're the only people who would do this. It's a way of coping with the reality of knowing the history of hatred that we have lived through. This overview might give you insight into how the Jewish people view the world we live in. Jews have done well in most of the nations they have been dispersed in, but they live with this re reality. It's always there. Sometimes it's in the front, sometimes it's looming in the back. Doesn't matter how prosperous you are. It doesn't matter how secure you think you are. That can change in an instant. From one, you can go to sleep and wake up in the morning and you will be evicted from your home. Your property will be seized, your life forfeited. That is the reality of Jewish people. There's two ways Jews deal with it. The religious, they isolate themselves. They form little enclaves, sometimes called ghettos, where they practice their faith. And those on the outside look in and they, these people are not like us. And the suspicion starts, and then the fear, and then the killing. Then there's others. The secular Jews who seek to be assimilated into their culture that they are presently living in, living in, but they never will. It has always failed. It failed in Persia during Esther's time. It failed in Germany. Because evil doesn't care what you think you are. Oh, Mr. Hitler, please, we are good Germans of Jewish descent. Hitler cared little. He cared only that they were Jewish descent. And they occupied the same camps with the religious Jews. Evil cares little how you see you. Evil has its own viewpoint. Whether we are in a land or dispense, dispersed amongst the nations, we live with the knowledge that at any moment, everything we know can be turned upside down. It's there. At times, it's our own fault for not keeping God's commandments. And as I said earlier, sometimes it's because we keep God's commandments. We isolate ourselves. We don't eat the same things. We don't worship on the same day. We're different. And so it behooves us to have these little enclaves, these ghettos. But that also fosters fear. And sometimes it's just because whatever nation we're in wants what we have. Sometimes it's just that simple. James, wherefore come wars? Because you, you want, you don't have, so you kill, so you can get. Or not. The light's back. Fourteen ninety two was an important date in the history of the world. It was also a rather poignant date in the history of Jews. 
The Jews were expelled from Spain, and their wealth was confiscated. There was a context to that event. In 1492, Columbus set sail for the New World, or for what he thought was India. This is how Ferdinand and Isabella financed the journey of Columbus. They expelled the Jews, took their wealth, and built the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. There are others who live with the same reality. There were Christians who did not follow the dominant churches of the, of the nation they lived in, and they were persecuted and murdered and stolen from. Puritans came here in 1620. What for? Religious freedom. They were being hounded by the Church of, of England. And so they left and established Plymouth. It's not victim mentality. It's a fact. It's a matter of historical record. My people are not seeking sympathy, but merely be allowed to defend ourselves against the gas. The, the barbarians who are gathering at the gate. It's the story of Esther. We don't want your help, but just, you know, don't hinder us. Let us defend ourselves. I cannot be more astonished as the world equivocates this situation in the Middle East. There is no equation between those who enter a society and rape women to death, behead infants in front of their mothers, burn children alive, and cut babies from their mother's womb, and those who wish to descend, defend their citizens from this kind of insanity. There's no equation here. Hamas, as al-Qaeda, and, and ISIS must be defeated and dismantled. That will save lives. I'm sorry. If people want to destroy lives and you stop them, you have saved lives. Pray the enemies, the armies of light, will eradicate the darkness that surrounds them and stop these atrocities. These are... Who does this kind of stuff? The Secretary General at the UN recently blamed Israel uh, for this conflict. He has since recanted, but his first statement remains, and much of the world believes it. The prophecy that Jerusalem would be a stumbling block for all the nations is certainly one that we can say amen to. We're watching it happen. you will be forced to choose which side you shall fight for. You may be ambivalent now, but that luxury will not remain. You will be forced to make a choice. And you have, the consequences for that choice are eternal. Those who bless Israel will be blessed. And those who curse Israel will be cursed. 
The world has always sought to quench the light of, the, of God's people. But Jews throughout, though we have, through all the things that we have suffered, believe that even when the world has entered utter darkness, the light of a single neshama, a single neshama of one of his chosen ones, will shine and illuminate all that surrounds it. May God give us eyes to see his light in the midst of this current darkness. The darkness will, give, will get darker. But there is a light that can't be seen. It's there. It's like the black sky at night. The light is there, it just can't be seen. All it needs is something placed in the midst of the darkness for the light to bounce off, and then you can see the light. Be that thing. Take the courage to expose the light and ignite the souls of others. Father, in Yeshua's name, in the midst of these dark times, may we, we, may we carry with us the light of your presence. Here we go. Even when it seems useless and pointless, may we carry the words of truth. May we stand for what is right and oppose what is wrong. The world may turn that upside down. You spoke of it. You told us this would happen. Let us not be influenced. The truth is there. If we have but eyes to see. In Yeshua's name.